Sam Patch was moments away from complete and total disaster when he stepped onto a platform overlooking the Genesee River. Some 8,000 people gathered to watch America's first daredevil jump 125 feet into the water. This was Friday, November 13, 1829, and Patch was famous for his death-defying stunts. They called him the Jersey Jumper, probably because he jumped off things in New Jersey. So this was just another adventure to add to his lore. Around 2 p.m., Patch climbed a pole up to his platform, took a shot of whiskey, and as the crowd watched with bated breath, he jumped, just as he had many times before. Remember, this is the Jersey Jumper, after all. Except, this time when he jumped, he didn't land feet first the way he usually did. Instead, he hit the water at an angle. The strong wind tilted his body to the side, so instead of landing feet first and gliding to the bottom, he hit the water hard and probably got knocked out cold. In fact, eyewitness accounts claim to have heard a loud thud, and then, nothing. Everyone waited for Patch to emerge from the water the way he always had. But seconds turned to minutes, and minutes turned to more minutes, and more minutes turned to more minutes, and remember this guy's underwater, so he's probably losing breath. Eventually, people began to fear the worst. No one would see Patch again that day, or many days after that. Eventually, people accepted that he was dead. The condemnation was swift and scathing. Local ministers and media blamed the onlookers for what happened. The Anti-Masonic Enquirer, for instance, called the event a daring and useless exposure of human life. The Rochester Observer took it further and claimed, We have all more or less been an accessory to this awful daring of the province of God. We are always in his keeping, but are never to dare his power. All who gave countenance to them by witnessing or encouraging their exhibition offend against the majesty of heaven and are daring the vengeance of an offended deity. Whoa. Ultimately, the frozen corpse of Sam Patch was found months later and helped fuel an already growing religious movement. Pastors all over upstate New York began preaching sermons about not testing the will of an omniscient God. For his part, Patch became part folk hero, part cautionary tale, depending on who you asked. He became the subjects of poems, songs, and plays, and was praised by Nathaniel Hawthorne for leaving such a lasting memory on Rochester. Maybe that's of some consolation. On the other side of the coin, a writer named George Elwood worried that Patch's exploits would encourage more idiots, his words, not mine, to jump off bridges. In their own way, both guys ended up being right. Many of the spectators from that November day were so ashamed and traumatized by their supposed role in Patch's death that they passed the story on to their children, hoping to discourage them from dangerous excursions. And yet, as time went on, other people took up Patch's mantle and took on their own daring exploits. Robert Emmett Odlum, for instance, died while jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge, trying to prove that you could jump off the Brooklyn Bridge without dying. So whether Patch is a hero or an idiot, brave or foolish, well, I guess the jury's still out on that one. But he's no doubt famous. In fact, a plank near where his body was found once read, Sam Patch, such is fame. The plank's probably not still there, but the sentiment, I think, lives on. There are plenty of examples of people throughout history, especially athletes, going to extraordinary lengths for fame and glory. Odlum died jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge just two years after his friend, Matthew Webb, died while trying to swim dangerous rapids in Niagara River. Despite the efforts of ministers and concerned writers, daredevils are going to be daredevils. 
it's probably not okay to be so glib about death, but, I mean, they had to know the risk going into this, right? Next, the story of what happens when the reckless pursuit of fame and glory are embraced, sanctioned, and normalized by an entire society on another continent nearly a century later. Like the spectators at the Genesee River that rainy November day, a group of people who probably never heard the name Sam Patch and probably never heard those sermons preached in upstate New York would experience a similar reckoning. It will take multiple casualties and ultimately a world war for it to happen. I'm Stuart Barefoot and this is Obscure Ball. As a podcast writer and producer, one of my goals in life is to help other podcasters make great shows. Lately, I've been partnering with Castos to do just that. Castos is a podcast software and hosting service that I wanted to work with because, like me, they're all about craftsmanship when it comes to making a podcast. And together, we're producing a neat show called Three Clips. Three Clips aims to demystify the craft of creating podcasts by featuring shows we love and dissecting said shows by analyzing Three Clips. That's how we got the title. So if you want to learn more about how to make a podcast, or if you're just curious about the types of cool podcasts out there, check out 3clipspodcast.com or find it on your podcast app of choice. Now on to this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called Such is Fame. Obviously, it's really great to cross the finish line, especially in the way that I was able to do it at Winston-Salem, which was sort of on my own and um, a pretty a decisive victory, if you will. Um, so that was pretty awesome. My name is Erica Clevenger. I'm a writer for DNA Pro Cycling, and I recently won the Winston-Salem Cycling Classic. Professional cycling today is a sophisticated and strategic sport, and athletes like Erica are probably more similar to someone like LeBron James or Serena Williams than they are Sam Patch. They're athletes who train hard, plan well, and reap the benefits. The central premise with cycling is that it's easier to ride in a group than it is to ride alone. So when you're in a pack, um, the idea is to get to a place where you can finish first with the greatest odds. But it's definitely a team sport, more, much more so than people realize. I mean, if you think about triathlon or you think about riding the bike in a triathlon, triathletes use time trial bikes. They're not allowed to draft. And the reason they're not allowed to draft is because there's an advantage to drafting. So that is what makes cycling so dynamic because you have this draft advantage being in the group. And that's what makes it very strategic. She's also part of an evolution, I think. You see, back in the early 1900s, cycling was quite different than it is now. Just ask Tim Moore. My name's Tim Moore. I'm a travel writer and... uh... I don't know, amateur adventurer. Tim writes about his adventures and sometimes will even publish books about them. French Revolutions and Travels with My Donkey, for instance. He also wrote Geronimo, writing the very terrible 1914 tour of Italy, which is about his attempt to recreate what some people call the worst bike race in history. The trouble with doing these these big cycling odysseys is you end up you can never do anything easier. You've always got to kind of make things worse and worse. So um, 
I thought, okay, I've got, I've got to up the ante. So I've done a book about the Tour de France. So these other, other, the next biggest bike race on earth is the Giro d'Italia. So I wonder, wonder what, uh, what I could do in terms of the Giro d'Italia. And then I kind of did a bit of Googling about, I think I actually literally Googled in the words, toughest bike race in history. And it came up with this stuff about the 1914 Giro d'Italia. And for some reason I thought, yeah, that would be great. I'll do that. And actually, you know, why not? Because in order to empathize with the <laughs> struggles of these kind of very young, fit sportsmen who um, somehow managed to take this challenge on in a way that I was not in any way capable of doing, I'll find a 1914 bike and I'll do it in 1914 cycling clothes and so on. So um, yeah, that's how, we, that's how we got started. So armed with this relic of a bicycle and antique clothing, Tim set out to do what proved to be nearly impossible for younger, better fit people a century earlier. Though Tim did have one tool in his arsenal that none of the writers from 1914 had. The thing with, with Calzolari was, much as I, I came to love him, I think I particularly came to love him because, in fact, he wasn't a great cyclist. Alfonso Calzolari. He began the 1914 Giro as a relatively unknown cyclist. Without trying to spoil things too much, he wouldn't be unknown after the Giro. He's important for another reason. Virtually everything we know about the race details and all of their hellacious, awful glory are thanks to his race diary that he kept. Somehow during all this madness, he was still keeping pretty detailed notes. Now ask any historian and they'll tell you that first-hand accounts, like diaries, are crucial to understanding history. Without them, there's a lot we wouldn't know. Even if they're biased to some extent, and Calzolori's was biased, they're still pretty useful. Calzolori's diary captured the insanity of that 1914 race. Much of it was thanks to geography and Mother Nature, which we'll get to. But there were some human factors that contributed to all of this as well. The Giro d'Italia was formed in 1909 by an Italian sporting newspaper called La Gazzetta dello Sport. That's my attempt to say Italian words, as a way to boost their circulation. Road races had already been around for about 50 years at this point, and were growing in popularity. So the idea was that the paper would sponsor the race as a way to cash in on a trendy sport and highlight the best Italy had to offer. I mean, think about it. People were keyed into cycling. So to keep up with the race, they'd snag a copy of La Gazzetta as the race progressed throughout Italy. So not only did it help the circulation of the paper, it also helped tourism in Italy. Kind of a win-win. The plan worked. The race helped the paper grow, so it continued on each year. In 1911, an editor at the paper named Armando Cunier, who'd been the race organizer from the very beginning, bought the majority of the paper's shares, and under his guidance, the Giro became even more popular. But the Italian economy was struggling, and by 1913, Cunier found himself deeply in debt and needed someone to bail him out. He found a buyer in a publishing house called Sanziono Editore. The new owners wanted to do something big for two main reasons. One, the economy. Like I said, it was bad. As well received as the Giro had been, they were still losing money. So they had to somehow gin up even more interest. And two, the Tour de France, which today is probably the sport's most recognizable event. The two races had already become tense rivals in terms of prestige. Call it national pride or whatever, but Cunier and the folks at Sangiono were determined to make their race bigger more exciting and more difficult than their French counterpart. 
there was almost like an arms race in these early bike races, which making them more and more difficult, more and more kind of, you know, impossible to com complete. And I think because the, the Giro d'Italia was obviously playing catch up a bit with the with the uh, the market leader, the Tour de France, the guy who was in charge of it in these early editions said, OK, I'm just going to make it, I'll make it like the Tour de France, but worse. Leading up to the race, Cunha made a few decisions to really shake things up. For one, he decided to reduce the number of days from the race from 17 to 15, while increasing the overall length to about 2,000 miles. He decided to eliminate a stage. There were nine the year before, so now there'd be eight. This combination meant that each stage would be absurdly long, like 245 miles on average. As a point of reference, the 1911 Giro spanned 23 days and it wasn't all that much longer. Or take the Tour de France in 1914. It was longer in overall distance, about 3,300 miles, mainly because France is bigger than Italy. But it lasted nearly a month, and each stage was only about 220 miles. Grueling, no doubt. But the Giro was something else entirely. I always kind of think of it in terms of those... You know, those dance marathons they used to do in the kind of 20s and people, somehow that became a great spectator thing. You'd turn up and watch couples dancing around until they collapsed of exhaustion, you know, seven days in or something. And there was just this slightly weird thing that people had back then of just there being a really attractive idea of just watching, you know, people push themselves beyond human limits. On top of that, he decided to scrap the old point system where riders amassed points based on where they finished each stage in favor of a more ambitious system of time alone, meaning the winner would be determined based on how fast they finished. This, on the surface, seems reasonable for a race, but when every rider had to fight for every second for 15 days of eight nonstop stages that lasted more than 240 miles... It was just ludicrous, really, the, the physical demands they, they put on these guys. Cunha may have been the mastermind here, but he was certainly egged on by plenty of people. The first culprit? His French counterpart. Henri de Gonche, who was in charge of the Tour de France, was the first to do away with the old point system. Wanting to keep pace with his competitor, Cunier followed suit. Beyond that, the sponsors also wanted the race to be as brutal as possible. Like their predecessor, Sanziono wanted to promote itself all over Italy, so they made sure the route encompassed a large part of the country. Starting from the Alps in the northwest and ending in Bari in the southeastern part of Italy, the route accomplished that. It just so happened it included some very difficult terrain. The bike manufacturers, they had their own stake in this too. They wanted to prove that their bikes were durable and could withstand a brutal race. So they too advocated for this idea of making the race as difficult as possible. Cunier had one last card up his sleeve. Thanks to the economy, he couldn't offer that much in the way of prize money about 300 lire, or roughly $9,000 by today's standards. For pro riders, this wasn't all that appealing, and not that many signed up. So Cunier opened it up to the general public. Anyone could enter if they dared. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but the economy was bad and people needed money. And if you weren't a pro rider, 300 lire, not too shabby. So 81 riders threw their hat in the ring some of them with little or no experience. So I think pretty much half the field, they were literally complete amateurs. You know, some of them probably had ridden a bike a bit, but some of them probably hadn't really ever really ridden a bike very much at all. And they were just rocked up at the start line in Milan. 
In ceremonial fashion, to start the race, they all gathered on a busy street in Milan around midnight on May 24th to massive fanfare. Some 10,000 people loudly cheered as 81 riders took off for the first of eight grueling stages. The riders probably knew the road ahead would be challenging, but no one could have fathomed just how bad things would get. That's next. So, I know I don't put out episodes very often. That's because if I'm going to do an episode, I'd rather do it well or not at all. And it takes a while to research topics, interview people, write, edit, and record these episodes. If you want to help support me in this effort, then share this podcast with your friends, family, acquaintances, coworkers, strangers. Really, anyone will do. Also, I built a new website. Check out obscureballpod.com to listen to all previous episodes and to learn more about how to support this effort. Okay, back to the episode. The only real interest the sponsors had, they weren't really interested in people lining along the route looking at you. They just wanted a big crowd to turn up at the stage finish. So they would kind of work back. You want everyone to, to be at the stage finish 400 kilometers down the road at about you know seven or eight at night where you get a nice big crowd off to work. What time do we need to start at the the start town? All oh, right, like 2 a.m. Well, that'll do then. Off you go. Get on your bikes in the middle of the night, everyone. Cycle through this snowstorm, and um, we'll see you 400 kilometers later. Within 15 minutes of the riders biking out of Milan, the sky opened up and rained for hours. Now, we're talking about massive amounts of rain here. Keep in mind that back in 1914, not all of the roads were paved. So the rain just created a whole bunch of mud that was near impossible to ride through. Not only that, the streets that were paved began to flood, and the wind was blowing really hard so trees were toppling over. As bad as all of that was, Manfred's nature wasn't the only obstacle. While cycling was popular in Europe, it also wasn't. It just depends on who you were and where you lived. At starting and finishing points like Milan or Rome, big cities, people love cycling. It was kind of like when a big ship set out to sea and then later docked. Huge crowds would gather and it was like this big event. The more rural parts of the country where much of the race happened was kind of like the middle of the ocean. That's where all the big storms seemed to be the worst. And there, not everyone loves cycling. Here's why. For many people in late 19th and early 20th century Europe, bikes were bad for economics. Farmers, for instance, hated them because they spooked their horses and affected dairy production. Cobblers didn't care for them either. People would buy bikes so they didn't have to walk, and their shoes lasted longer, so shoe sales were down. You could imagine there were probably some angry cobblers out of a job. Craftsmen, same deal. People would buy bikes instead of pianos, furniture, or whatever luxury items they could afford. Plus, there was this whole class and cultural resentment. These cosmopolitan elites were riding through their territory, disrupting their way of life, and they didn't like it. The result was a pretty radical form of direct action. Carriage drivers, fearing that cyclists would drive them out of business, would literally run them off the road when they encountered them, while street sweepers threw horse crap at them. And then people who didn't have either a carriage or a horse or horse feces would throw nails on the streets that way cyclists would ride over them, deflating their tires. By 1914, things had kind of cooled off, but there were still some holdovers who would do those things. 
So if riders managed to make their way out of the mud, the flood, and the fallen trees, now they had the angry locals to deal with. So there was rain, mud, fallen trees, horse feces, angry carriage drivers, nails, and oh yeah, because this was spring on the Alps, that rain soon turned to snow. And, you know, because it's late spring and it's the Alps, there's just this massive blizzard, this, uh, you know, rolling snowstorm. And, you know, they were getting hypothermia. They were getting kind of just lost in the snow, people falling off, breaking arms, legs. And because these bikes were very old, clunky machines, they would, um, and riding on these rough roads, they didn't just get punctures, although they got absolutely bloody loads of punctures. But the bikes themselves would just get rattled to pieces in the most terrifying way, like the handlebars would just break off while they're going down the hill, or the frame would snap in half, or one of their pedals would fall off. Um, yeah, so I think it's fair to say that I, <laughs> I was in a sort of permanent state of awe at what these guys managed to do. Things got so bad that more than half of the field didn't finish that first stage. Among the 40-some riders who called it quits was the entire Atala squad and many of the Giro's top riders, like F.H. Grubb. Grubb was a really interesting case. A former Olympian and one of the few non-Italians in the race, he apparently wasn't well-liked by his peers. Some called him pretty arrogant. They'd stick things in his spokes while he was trying to ride, which is probably against the rules. Anyway, he didn't like it, so he quit. As the weary riders trickled into Biala at the end of the first stage, a man named Angelo Grimo was leading the pack by about 17 minutes, with Carlo Dorando close behind him. In third place was Calzolari, who at that point was not an accomplished or experienced rider. It's hard to say why he trudged on in such appalling conditions, but according to Italian journalist Paolo Facinetti, who later interviewed Calzolari in the 1970s and then wrote extensively about him, he visited a prophetess just two days before the race began. She told him that he was destined to win the race. She may have failed to mention just how bad of an experience it would be. In the aftermath of that mm, eventful first stage, Cunier told the press that he had no regrets about the situation. As long as one rider finishes the race, that's enough for me, he said. He wouldn't be that far off. All during the second stage, the poor conditions continued to make it an awful experience, and another 10 riders dropped out. As they rode along the coast, heavy wind blew water from the Gulf of Genoa into their faces, making it hard for riders to see. Grimo suffered severe kidney pain and tried to battle through it until he collapsed. That was it for him. He was out. By the end of the second stage, the field had whittled down to 27 riders of the original 81 and it was now Calzolori who had the lead by about 30 minutes. But once the third stage started, it was a 23-year-old Italian named Laura Bordin who emerged as the frontrunner thanks to either the gutsiest or dumbest stunt in sports history. After a day of rest, the rider set off for Rome. It was a good midnight because, you know, they always had to leave early, and things got weird before the stage even began. The starting line was in a town called Lucca, near a railway crossing. And right about the time the cyclists gathered, a train came barreling down the tracks. So everyone did the sensible thing and waited for the train to pass. Well, everyone but Bourdin. Under cover of darkness, he snuck away on foot, carrying his bike and climbed through a hole in a fence and crossed the tracks just ahead of the train. No one saw him, so he built a pretty big lead. That was how the longest day in Giro history began. And for a solid 13 hours, 
where Dean was comfortably out ahead of the peloton. But slowly but surely, a pack of six riders working together caught up to him. Maybe it was just fatigue or loneliness, who knows, maybe both, but Bourdine was starting to go crazy. While Rome was just about 50 miles away, he was still leading when a group of four riders caught up to him. As they passed him, he made no effort whatsoever to ward them off. Thank you was all he said as they rode by him. As the stage wore on, Bourdine lost considerable ground and finished the stage 10th, as Calzalori once again finished the stage in the lead. This was apparently a problem for the powers that be, especially the most powerful team in cycling at the time, Bianchi. Today, Bianchi is a bike company who can trace their roots back to 1885. By 1896, they began sponsoring road races as a way to showcase their bikes. Carlo Gietti, for instance, won the 1911 Giro riding for Bianchi. And in 1914, many of the race's top riders like Grimo, Bourdine, and Giuseppe Azzini all were on their roster. Not on the team was Calzolari, who was riding for a rival squad named Stuckey, and about halfway through the race held a firm lead. No thanks to Bianchi and their attempts at sabotage. Now that's a pretty serious accusation to make, but as you could imagine from what I've described so far, Cheating was rampant in this day and age, and with so much at stake, the most powerful team in cycling wasn't going to let an unknown like Calzolari win this thing. In fact, there were a few peculiar incidents that suggest Bianchi was actively trying to rig the race. First off, during the second stage, Calzolari was hit with a bogus 10-minute penalty for receiving help. His supposed crime? Someone from his team rode ahead to get him dry shorts and sugar tablets. Meanwhile, Bourdine was able to actually cheat to start the third stage. Secondly, during stage four, the riders came across a traffic jam of trucks and horse carriages. So they got off their bikes, hoisted them up on their shoulders, and carried them around the vehicles. Oddly enough, when Calzolori got back on his bike, his tire was flat. Someone had stuck a tack in it, which could only happen if someone snuck up behind him and jabbed his tire. In theory, this could have been just about anyone, though Calzolori believed it was his new rivals. This happened at a crucial turning point during the race, where Calzolori held a slim lead over Bianchi's Azzini. But thanks to Tiregate, as I'm calling it, Calzolori had to desperately try to fix his tire, while Azzini was able to break out ahead of everyone. Then at a checkpoint, riders had to sign in at checkpoints to prove they were actually there, someone again stuck a tack or something in his tire, the same spare tire he had used to replace the other damaged tire. Ugh, crazy stuff. But the most bizarre of all of these happened leading up to the sixth stage, which, by the way, was really one for the books. It was an off day, and Calzolori was resting in a hotel room when he recorded something strange in his diary. He described a menacing figure leaning over his bed and offering him 15,000 lire if he would just finish second. In other words, attempted bribery. If this did in fact happen, all signs point to Bianchi being the likely culprit. Azzini was about 20 minutes in the lead by this point, and his team badly wanted to win the race. They were far and away the richest team, and probably the only one capable of offering a sum 50 times the amount of prize money. The financial windfall for their products would be enormous if one of their riders won the race. At least that was their rationale. 
Calzolari did the noble thing and turned down the bribe, though he'd have his own cheating scandal to deal with. Because, because there was so much cheating that went on in these races, at one point, I think towards towards the, uh, you know, kind of two-thirds of the way through, because even though it was a popular sport and people would come out to, to watch it, you know, Italy was still quite an empty country. So for large parts of it, there's nobody there. So, you you know, you can get up to all sorts of stuff. And there was some big, big uh, mountain, toward, you know, two-thirds of the way through, and... Uh, a lot of them just got towed up it by by this mysterious red car, uh, and and some people were were you know they were they, exactly nobody you have to you've had to make a real effort to get disqualified for cheating. I mean, I think the guy who won the first ever Tour de France, uh, um, he never he never had his victory taken away from him. I don't think, but anyway, the fact is he he was you know subsequently discovered he did an awful lot of it on a train. He literally just uh, turned up at the start and sneaked off to the station, put his bike on a train, and went all the way that way. So, yeah, Calzolari clearly, you know, just, he said, oh, there was this incident with this car towing some other riders up a hill. I, I just tried to get out of the way. I was trying to save myself. And clearly, you know, obviously, he, he that's a load of old cobblers and he was um, towed up the mountain by a car and chose not to confess to them. A Giro official saw the whole thing, which was bad, but nothing compared to the media frenzy. The headline on the Gazetta the next day read, Drama and Intrigue at the Giro. Bianchi lodged an official complaint, saying that Calzolari and two of his teammates held onto the car riding up the mountain, a form of cheating that was, and from what I've gathered, still mostly ignored. But then another paper leveled a very serious accusation. El Resto de Carlino, which ran in Calzolari's hometown of Bologna, of all places, accused him and his teammates of actually hopping in the car and riding up the hill. Now this is very much against the rules, and all three could have been kicked out of the race altogether, effectively handing Azzini, and by extension, Bianchi, a victory. Ultimately, race officials decided not to kick them out of the race, but still handed down some pretty harsh justice. The three culprits would be given the same time as the stage's last place finisher, plus a minute for good measure. That meant that Calzolori went from being six seconds behind the lead to three hours and 22 minutes, because the guy in last place was a teenager named Umberte Ripamani. At 19 years old, he was the last remaining amateur in the race and was three hours and 21 minutes behind the rest of the field. This technicality, or consequence of cheating, should have been enough to sink Calzolori's chances. It should have now been Azzini's race to win for a team who, possibly, cheated and tried to bribe their way to the top. But while Calzolori and his teammates were being towed up the hill by this mysterious red car, Azzini had gone AWOL, literally missing. Given the rain, snow, flooding, angry locals, and all manner of obstacles this race was capable of, there was a chance he could be dead. So people were understandably pretty freaked out. A search party was formed and looked for him all night. And eventually, a journalist named Alfredo Cavera found him in a barn, shivering and clutching onto his bike. Turns out he'd been there for 12 hours with a fever. When Cavera found him, he was barely conscious. He was rushed to a hospital where he recovered, but dropped out of the race and was on a train home before the seventh stage even began. Weirdly enough, this was actually the second time Mazzini had been found in a barn during a race. It happened at the 1913 Giro as well. He blamed the 1914 episode on pneumonia, but there's another possible explanation. I think there's, there's two sorts of of performance enhancement that that cyclists have traditionally used over the years. One is to 
blot out the absolute appalling misery of what you're doing to yourself. Um, and I guess alcohol is probably quite good in that regard. And the other one is to actually make yourself physically better at cycling. Um, and we had to wait quite a long time really to get into that that era. And that was, uh, you know, kind of blood doping and EPO and that sort of stuff. And well, steroids, someone earlier that. But uh, I think really that all of the stuff that they would say performance enhancing drugs in 1914, um, there's a an awful lot of booze to the extent that you know they'd have two bottles on their bike and one one of them was nearly always just full of red wine uh and then just just weird things like strychnine which of course we might know better now as as rat poison but did have some crude amphetamine style effect by all accounts but clearly you didn't want to kind of get your dosage wrong this kind of makes sense for azini taking strychnine and guzzling alcohol while seemingly suicidal could give him a temporary performance boost I mean, he was far and away the best rider during the fourth and fifth stages. But then his sudden collapse during the sixth stage makes more sense knowing that he might have been all drugged up. It's also rumored that he was found with an empty bottle of brandy. So there's that. So with Azzini out, that put Calzolori back in the lead and neck and neck with a fellow named Pierino Albini. During those final two stages, Calzolori would build a steady lead, though it was overshadowed by the accusations of cheating. Calzolori would win the race by about 22 minutes and was one of just eight riders to actually finish. But in anticlimactic fashion for the craziest bike race in history, there'd be legal challenges to the results. For the next year, a legal battle between the Italian Cycling Federation, who said Calzolori should have to forfeit and that Albini was the winner, and the race organizer, Cunier, who argued Calzolori was the true winner, went back and forth. The courts eventually agreed with Cunier, and Calzolori was officially declared the winner. This would have been a turning point for him in his career, but less than a month after the Giro ended, another, more deadly, and even more brutal event took place. And it all started with the assassination with Franz Ferdinand. After 1914, uh, you know, which was, say, the race I was following the Giro of 1914, you look at the, obviously there was a, you know, there were no no um, professional bike races during the First World War, and uh, afterwards, they are, it is, the, the stages, you don't get these, I mean, it's still pretty brutal by today's standards, but the stage length pretty much gets chopped in half. I mean, the guy who, who was in charge of the race in 1914, he said, my ideal race would be one that only one rider could finish. And I think in the, after the First World War, that kind of mentality just seemed really pretty distasteful, frankly. And I think the, yeah, the, the public desire to see, you know, young men covered in mud suffering horribly had, had been sated in, a, in the worst way imaginable during the First World War. Among the some 20 million people killed in the war were Giro riders Lucien Petit Baron and 1913 Giro champion Carlo Oriani. Because of the war and then the 1918 flu pandemic, the Giro went on hiatus until 1919. And like Tim said, after that, no one really had that much appetite for these brutal races. They continued to be, and still are, challenging, sure. But statistically, no race would ever reach the level of the 1914 Giro. 90% of the riders withdrew. That's a record. On average, no race has had longer stages. And that third stage between Luca and Rome is the longest stage of all time. Now, more than a century later, the sport is more humane and much safer, though it still has its risks. Just ask Erica. It was Cadell's Great Ocean Road Race, 
and it was pouring. It was actually raining so hard that um, there was a helicopter following, following us and they had to ground it. Um, so anyways, uh, we were doing this big descent. Everyone knew this descent was coming. And like, I think people were being careful, but um, sometimes you, it's not up to you. Like sometimes there's a sketchy rider, but a lot of times it's not necessarily any, any one person. It's sometimes just the, um, the scenario. So basically almost the whole Peloton crashed in front of me. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> if it's part of racing, like any sport, um, any kind of dangerous sport, there, uh, there's some inherent risk involved and that's part of the reason why it's fun, right? Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's some gnarly crashes out there for sure. It's not the safest sport in the world. <laughs> Even so, advances in equipment have made things much safer. Bikes have gotten a lot safer than they used to be. Um, that's for sure. And, um, I think some awareness and things like that. It's also still evolving. Cycling is an old sport, right? So, um, it's sort of entrenched in some of these values. Like think about, I don't know, the Tour de France, cycling's biggest race, and many of cycling's biggest races uh, don't have races for women. Um, so we're still pretty far behind in in that regard. And then certainly, like, um, there's a lot of other aspects. There's just a, less development and things like that for women. But I think that things are improving, and that's really encouraging. Um, it's never as fast as people would like, and as I would like, certainly. But, um, yeah, I think that there's certainly a lot of inequality still, but it's people who are sticking with it and staying in the sport and um, kind of, you know, driving their passion into it that are making a difference in that. In fact, sports as a whole are still evolving. In May of 2021, 21 people died during an ultra marathon in China. 21. The race began in Yellow River Stone National Park. And as the runners, dressed only in shorts and t-shirts, climbed up a hill, a sudden rain and hailstorm pummeled down on them. Temperatures dropped so suddenly that it quickly became a nightmare, a life-and-death situation. This event was put on by the Chinese government as a way to promote tourism in the Gansu province and covered large swaths of remote areas with difficult geography. Sound familiar? Granted, this is a type of story that requires a lot of nuance and investigation, but it's objectively worse than the Giro or what happened to Sam Patch. Who knows? Maybe things don't really change that much. Obscureball is presented by Small League Productions. Music for this episode and all previous episodes is courtesy of Storyblocks. A special thanks to Erica Clevenger and Tim Moore for help with this story. This episode and all previous episodes was written edited, produced, and narrated by me. I'm Stuart Barefoot. To check out all previous stories, go to obscureballpod.com or your podcast app of choice. While there, subscribe and stay tuned for new episodes, which are released occasionally.